Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, happy to celebrate with all you guys. And, and this is kind of fun for me because my mom will watch this on Facebook. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. Uh, I can say it face-to-face, live, right here from church. But happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. We are thankful to have you in our midst. Um, it's a weird sermon. Everything about what we're doing right now is weird. I just want you to, being in here with seven or eight people and trying to, to, to preach as, and, 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 and interact as if it's the whole congregation is a bit weird. But so in keeping with that, I have a very weird text for Mother's Day. Um, you'll see that. And some of you, I mentioned last week, I had an, a, um, an idea from my friend Glenn that we would have a sermon outline contest since we're sending out the outlines ahead of time, you could fill in the blanks and send it in to me by 8 a.m. Sunday morning. And the winner in the categories of accuracy and creativity would each get a chocolate bar of their choice. Well, I got one submission uh, this week. Uh, and because of that, it won in both categories, both creativity, which was a movie theme one, and, uh, and accuracy, which I don't think there's anything accurate about it, but it's the only one submitted. So uh, Glenn Ogren wins two chocolate bars this week. And I'll invite the rest of you guys to submit yours next week by 8 a.m. Sunday morning. Um, we're looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, we've, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we've seen quite a bit so far. We're, we're in chapters 8 and 9 and part of 11 today. Uh, it's, a church, it's written to a church living in a difficult time, and it's this picture, this revelation of Jesus who conquers by dying for the very people who hate him. We've seen that the lion of the tribe of Judah we saw in chapter 4 is, is a slain lamb. And we've seen in chapter 4, we look behind the, the door and into the throne room of heaven to see the reality that's going on behind our own experience. And we saw the opening of these seven seals, uh, this, this reality of, uh, of how God's plan is playing out in the world. And we saw that in that gap between seal six and seal seven was this picture of the church of Jesus, that the safest place to be as God's plan is played out is in the kingdom of God, marked by the Holy Spirit and sealed with him. And and even death cannot destroy us when we're following the lamb. And so today we come to what happens as the last seal is opened. And I'm very disappointed today because I had uh, Wayne and Cindy Stewart read these passages. I, I loved it. Because I said to Cindy, I've got a perfect Mother's Day passage for you to read. Would you and Wayne mind reading it? And she, they did it and sent it in, and now we've had an audio glitches. So I'm going to actually end up reading it. But I'm, I'm going to post their reading just because it deserves to be posted. Anybody that can read this text for Mother's Day needs to be seen online. Um, anyway, Cindy told me after it was over, it's not a very good Mother's Day text. But it, I think it's one of the most, most difficult sections of Revelation to read. But it starts in chapter 8, verse 6. We'll read to the end of chapter 9 and then skip over to chapter 11. So here we go. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel sounded, like, sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his, his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Chapter 9, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And during those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. And the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. And the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, and bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And we'll skip over to the seventh trumpet in chapter eleven, fifteen. See what I mean about a Mother's Day text? This is a winner. Gets better here a bit. Chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. There you go. Now you can see why Wayne and Cindy deserve big praise for reading that. For Mother's Day. Um, these seven trumpets, I, like I say, one of the, the more difficult passages in Revelation to read. Uh, they unleash suffering and death and destruction on the earth. The first four seem to be more natural, disaster-oriented. Five and six are more demonic with scorpions and horses with tails like serpents. And, and what I want to do today is we're going to ask three questions about these trumpets uh, we're going to skip, as you saw, the middle part. Remember, there's a gap between six and seven in all those series of seven things. We're going to skip that and come back to it next week. But first of all, I want us to say, what is the context of the trumpets? We have to begin by looking at where it fits in in all of Revelation. I don't know if you uh, sometimes, believe it or not, a guy who gets up and speaks for 30 to 40 minutes a week gets taken out of context. I get misinterpreted quite a bit, and it's frustrating. And so I, I want us, as we look at this passage, to find out where it fits and be aware of the structure of what's going on in Revelation. Remember I said last week there's those three sets of seven. In chapter 6, there's seven seals on the scroll. Chapters 8, 9, and 11, there's seven trumpets that sound. And chapters 15 and 16, there's seven bowls of wrath or seven plagues that are poured out. And, and they're all in, in the same kind of sequence. The first four always come rapid fire, just boom, boom, boom. Number five and number six have a little more detail. It slows down a bit. And then there's a pause or an interlude. Last week we saw it was a message to the church. Remember at the end of the, the fifth and sixth seal, it was like, who can stand? And then, then there's this pause before the seventh seal. And it says the, the ones who are marked by the Spirit, the, the followers of the Lamb are the ones who can stand through all this. And next week, we're going to look at the interlude between trumpet six and trumpet seven. And once again, it's a message to us as these trumpets are being sounded. And then the seventh, in all the sequences, the seventh deals with some action happening in heaven, and then thunder and lightning and an earthquake and, and, and rumblings. And it always ends dramatically with number seven. But when we look just at the blowing of the trumpets, what I want you to see is they come out of the seventh seal. At the beginning of chapter eight, the seventh seal is opened, and there was silence in heaven for half an hour. We talked about the prayers of the people of God going up, and it says that you know, the incense comes up to God, and it's those prayers that bring about the sounding of the seven trumpets. See, the trumpets are the result of prayer. We may not like that necessarily, but what's happened is back in, in chapter 6, you remember the saints around the throne cried out, How long, O oh Lord, how long must people suffer? How long must people die? And, and, and he's answering their cry, their prayer, with these trumpets. As God's people call out, he responds. And, and then a key question is, when do these happen? Like there's, as you read commentaries on Revelation, there's, there's a lot of speculation about that. Do these happen... Um, as Jesus returns, do they happen after he returns? I, I, I think they happen in the buildup toward his return. Now, there's a, there's a passage when Jesus talks about his return that sounds a little similar to what we read in Matthew 24. 
verses 27 to 30, it says, For as lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Sounds a little bit like what we read, right? Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples on the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It sounds similar, but if you look at 8, Revelation 8, 12, it's different. In 8, 12, all those things, the sun, the stars, it says a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light. It's, it's, this is a building. This is not the full return, I don't think. I think this is a building up to that. These judgments are happening in the lead up to the return of Jesus. And I think that because of the second question, what is the purpose of the trumpets? Now, I'm not a military strategist, um, but I do know that if you're trying to attack somebody and defeat them, you don't blow a trumpet to let them know that you're coming. Trumpets are, are blown by the people on the walls watching for attackers coming. Trumpets are sounded as a warning. It's a signal to prepare yourself. And it, in the same way, I think God is using these limited, and I'll, I'll explain that, these limited judgments to sound the warning. In the Old Testament is a very common thing to have a trumpet as warning. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand. It's this, this idea that the trumpet is blown to give a warning. Again, in Ezekiel 33, it's a bit longer, but I'll read it, 1 to 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anybody hears the trumpet but does not take warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. And you skip down to verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes the life of one of many of them, the man will be taken away because of his sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them a warning for me. This whole idea of these seven trumpets is the idea of warning. These harsh realities that are coming say something is wrong. You're going down the wrong road. And we, we've seen the groaning of creation. We've talked about that. You know, the, those first four trumpets all are destructive elements of creation. And people go through these trumpets one by one and they have a category for each one. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you the first four looks like natural destruction in a total, uh, a ton of ways. It could be global warming. It could be, we all know we're seeing more strange things happen with the environment and the world today. Mother Nature is not happy. And, and five and six, you know, they're, they're horrific and demonic almost. These scorpions and these, these horses, that, these people that breathe out fire and sulfur and smoke that burn up and kill. Once again, there's this spiritual thing that's happening. This, there's, there's something, it's saying to the world, there's something out of line, something that needs to be done. I, I Two weeks ago after church, I had to bring some stuff back over here. So I jumped in my van, started it up, drove it over. And as soon as I started the car, I noticed there was a different kind of sound. Just the engine was humming at a frequency a little bit higher. And I thought, oh, okay. 
There's no warning lights on. I thought I'll drive to the church and then I'll pop the hood and check it out. So I got here and when I popped the hood, I could smell burning rubber. And that's not a good sign when you're hearing a noise and you smell burning rubber. And so I just left. Obviously, I dumped my stuff off. I walked home and the next day I took it to the shop because I, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. I knew there was something going on. There were indicators that said something needs to be fixed. And that's what these seven trumpets are. They're warnings to tell us that the way the world is functioning is not the way it was created to function. Now, the question is, who are the warnings directed to? And if you look at chapter 8, verse 13, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. It's a word of mourning. It's a funeral word that's used. And woe to who? To the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The inhabitants of the earth is the same phrase used back in chapter 6, verse 10, when the people of God cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. These warnings are directed toward people in the earth. But now which people? Look at chapter 9, verse 4. The locusts are given very clear instructions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember we talked about last week, the people that were sealed by the Spirit of God were protected. So these inhabitants of the earth that are being warned are not the people of God, but it's the rest of of creation. It's to those who resist the kingdom, the people who stand against the kingdom. There are warnings given to let them know that something is wrong. And and here's one thing that I want you to realize about the text. We read it and it's horrible and terrific and we think, how could God do that? Who lets that kind of thing happen? But warnings are given because you want someone to make a change. We, We warn people because we want something different for them. Jeremiah writing after the people of of Israel go into exile in Lamentations 3 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, that's the thing about these warnings is they're given to call the inhabitants of the earth to realize that they're living in a way that's resisting the kingdom of God. And what we see in these judgments, believe it or not, is the patience and the restraint of God. And you may think, what? (laughs) Where do we see the patience and restraint of God? Well, did you notice in the first four trumpets, the fractions, a third, a third, a third. Even in in chapter 9, verse 10, when the, the scorpions are stinging the people not marked with the seal, they're only allowed to suffer for five months. There's a limit to it. And even in chapter 9, 15, when the horses are breathing out this fire and sulfur and smoke and and, and, and it only kills a third of the population. And I know I'm saying only kills a third, like that's a good thing. But, but what I want you to see is there's a limited nature to these judgments that are coming because it's a warning for others. The limit is there to show that God will go to extreme lengths to bring as many who will come to him as, as will. In 2 Peter 3, 9, says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some people understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And John's listeners, this is the part that's hard to stomach, I think, for us. John's listeners are, are crying out, how long? How long do we have to suffer? And remember the answer they get from the throne? 
until the full number who will be killed like you were killed come in. You think, oh, <laughs> that's not the answer we wanted. But what, what, what he says then, too, is that those people who are brought in, it says in chapter 7, that there's no hunger, thirst, no suffering and pain. The lamb is their shepherd, and he wipes every tear from their eye. See, the point is, even in this judgment, even as people suffer and die, that those who follow Jesus are brought into safety and security. Even in this judgments, we see the patience and the restraint of God. And, and believe it or not, we have to start wrestling with the fact, you may not agree with me on this, but judgment is good news. Judgment is good news. We all want judgment because I think if there's no judgment, then nothing really matters. There's the example this, this week, just of Ahmaud Arbery, right? This, this young black man jogging that is, is chased down by two guys, a retired cop and his son. And I, I'm sure they didn't wake up that morning thinking, I'm going to go shoot a black man today. But, but they got caught up in the moment and these, these horrible things happen. And then for two months, no charges or anything, any, anything happens in the court system to deal with this young man's death. And what eventually happens is, is word spreads through the media, through social media, through, through Twitter and everywhere about this case. And the story comes out. And just this week, these two guys were charged. Now, they'll go to court and, and all the truth will come out about what happened. But there was a relief, a collective sigh of relief that... Okay, judgment is going to happen. If these guys did something wrong, they'll be punished for it. We, we feel that need. We want to know that the people who do wrong will pay for it. And we want to know that the people who do good will be rewarded for it. There's something in us that's wired that way. The saints cry, how long, how long, how long? And these judgments, even though they're difficult, say not forever. There will be an end to this. Judgment says God cares, that he takes evil seriously, he takes sin seriously, and ultimately justice will come through. And that's where I want us to look at what are the result of the trumpets. What's the result? Well, they unleash all these horrible forces, some of the most difficult, like I say, visions in the whole book. And on the surface, the result we see is suffering and destruction. Natural destruction, destruction earthquakes, tsunamis, freak storms. And we see spiritual destruction here, too. It's more a metaphorical picture of spiritual destruction. But in our own world, we see mass murders. We see shootings in the schools. We see terrorism. We see increased fear all the time. We see war and genocide all over our world. We see corruption and exploitation of the poor growing and growing and growing. There's this spiritual collapse. It's like the world is, is folding in on itself. Right? Do you guys see that? I see that. In chapter 9, verse 11, it's talking about the scorpions. And it says, They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Both of those words, Abaddon and Apollyon, in their respective languages, mean destroyer. And, and here's, here's the thing. What the trumpets, the results of the trumpets are self-destruction. The world is really imploding. And so now, now some of you are saying, Jeff, are you... Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell now, you're saying that every bad thing that happens is the judgment of God. I'm not saying that necessarily, but I'm saying that what we see in the world are indicators, just like the burning rubber and the noise in my car was an indicator that something is not running the way it's supposed to be, that something needs to be addressed. Something is wrong with life as we know it. And it's not just out there. It's in here, right? I look at my own life, and maybe you look at yours, right? And there's these times 
when I, I don't even expect to, but I, I, I cut somebody down. I slander someone. Maybe I'm trying to be funny or trying to make myself elevate myself or, or, or I refuse to forgive somebody who's hurt me. Or, you know, I, I, I look down on somebody else in kind of arrogance and pride. And, and from a realistic viewpoint, those things are stupid. I'm not doing them any good and I'm definitely not doing me any good. You've heard the quote that being angry at somebody is like drinking poison and waiting for somebody else to die. I mean, it's crazy for me to act that way, but I still do it. It's an indicator that even within me, even as a follower of Jesus, there are things that need to be purified. There are warning signs in me that say I need to humble myself and surrender and repent. Because something is wrong in us. Something is wrong in the state of creation. And all of these things that are happening, (coughs) excuse me, this destruction and this implosion say something needs to be done. And yet, at the end of chapter 9, it says, after all of this, after six of these trumpets, humanity still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So on the surface result, you see destruction. You see this havoc and chaos, but in the heart, there's not much, at least not until next week. There's not much result. And why is that? Why is it that all this trouble, you'd think if all these warning judgments are coming, we would wake up and listen. I mean, I took my car to the mechanic because of that, right? And surely if, if we realize the world is not functioning the way it's supposed to function, we would repent, we would change. But it says we don't. I want you to stay tuned next week because we're going to talk about in chapters 10 and the first half of 11 what actually brings about change in people because change happens in between 6 and 7 for some people. And you might be surprised about what actually brings it out. But, but the reality is that the trumpets will come. They'll unleash destruction. We're seeing that already, I think. Every day we're seeing the world implode upon itself and we're seeing people still not change. But in the end, we'll see the coming of the kingdom. The seventh trumpet sounds, and we read these words in chapter 11, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Did you notice something different there? If I was to say to you the phrase, the God who is and who was... What kind of follows in your head and who is to come, right? But look at verse 17 of chapter 11. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. You know why it doesn't say who is to come? Because at this point, he has come. This is, this is the ending of these warning judgments. It's like, like the seven seals play out. And then once again, the seven trumpets are just another telling of the same story that build to the coming of the kingdom of God. It's leading to chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. Sorry, I'm going to take a drink. I I heard last week that this little thing whistles. So when you hear the whistle on my microphone, there you go. Sorry, Sig Sig can't filter out the whistle that quick. So, but I had to take a drink. The end will come. The thlipsis, remember we talked about the collision of kingdoms last week? 
The fact that the kingdom of God is coming and the kingdom of the world is fighting against it and, and there's this pressure in between, it will come to an end because the person in the driver's seat is this slain lamb who's going to restore and make all things new. So the question is, how do we live today? What is the revelation for today? If it's true, and I think it is, that God is unleashing these trumpets of signs of warning to the world around us, how do we live in this context? How do we work with Him instead of against Him? In a nutshell, what does the Lord require of us? Does that sound familiar to you? Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O man, O woman, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We have to, in this time of warning trumpets of judgment, pray and live for justice. People of God are calling out for justice. How long, O Lord, until you make this right? They're calling out for it. They're praying for it. But they're also dying for it. They're living, offering their lives in sacrificial love, even to the point of death. You know what we need to do as a church? We are the ones in the pandemic who serve and love even at great personal costs, even at risk. The one who overcomes, remember from a few weeks ago, is the one who keeps the deeds of the slain lamb, the one who does what Jesus would do. We should be the ones standing for and protecting the suffering around us. We need to pray to God. We need to say, God, act. How long, God? And then we need to let our actions be the answers to our prayers. To enter the suffering of the world right here in hope. One of the things that has overwhelmed me during this pandemic is there's, there's a huge population here in hope who just wander through the day. They don't really have a home and they go to coffee shops and they go to the, the <coughs> fast food restaurants as a third space, as a place where they can actually just sit and watch people. And those places are closed. And we, we need to realize the suffering of the world around us and enter into that. There's addiction all through our community. Domestic violence is, is ramped up because people are cooped up in the same house. People that were already struggling with it before it just, just increases the opportunity for this. Fractured relationships, loneliness and isolation, all these things are crying out to us that hope is not well. So how we live in that, we need to pray and live for justice. And we need to see the hand of God all around us. We talked about creation telling people about God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Creation declares the glory of God. I was coming into my house this morning just after seven. I'd been out to pick up the Starbucks stuff that we're storing in the freezer to use in the breakfast. And I'm walking down the sidewalk and the sun is shining through the wisteria on the fence. And it's like this transcendent moment. Wow. It was the most, just an incredibly beautiful thing that just there it was at that moment. And I'm standing in my sidewalk looking at the glory of God. And we know that, right? We felt, we felt those moments. But do you realize the brokenness of the world declares the glory of God as well? That the brokenness and our pain in the brokenness says to us, this is not the way it was meant to be. This, this is an indicator that we need to return, that we need to surrender. You know, we need to help people understand that their brokenness is a call to God. Our own brokenness has to be a call to God. I've asked a lot of people, you think something's wrong with the world? I've never had anybody say no. We all know that. 
And we need to help people connect the dots, to hear the trumpets, to put the pieces together. We need to be the church in the midst of judgment. Next week, if, there's just a sneak peek if you look at chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. A voice I'd heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What we're talking about next week is how do we live in the middle of this judgment? We take the word of God in, which is sweet to us, but also sour because it hurts to see it in light of the world. And then we speak it. We speak that, that these trumpets and this brokenness is a way of calling people to God. We, we follow the, the example of the slain lamb as we live it out so that people can see what the kingdom of God looks like. I'll close with a story. A whistle and a story. Doug Nichols wrote this about his, uh, he's a former missionary. He wrote it in World Magazine back in 1994. And I've kept this article, this story, because I love this image. He was in India back in 1967 working with an organization called Operation Mobilization. And he, he caught tuberculosis while he was there. They put him in a sanatorium. And, and after he was finally admitted, he thought, okay, here's an opportunity for me to share the gospel. I don't speak the language of most of these people, but I have tracts. I have things I can hand out. And so he started trying to hand out Christian materials to the doctors, the nurses, the patients. Nobody would take anything from him because they saw him as a rich American in a government-run sanatorium. They didn't realize he was a missionary and didn't have two nickels to rub together. And he said he was discouraged. He was sick. Everyone was angry at him. He, he couldn't even witness because of the language barrier and no one would even take the materials to read. It was like this, this utter desolation. He couldn't do anything. And he says every night, repeatedly, he woke up at 2 a.m. coughing. And, and one night as he was going through his coughing spell, he noticed an, an older man, certainly sicker than him, just across the hall from him in the, in, or just across the little aisle. And he was, he was trying to get up get out of his bed. He kept trying to get up and he was too weak and finally he, he collapsed back into his bed and then he, and a few minutes later he just started sobbing. And, and Doug says, I, I didn't know what had happened. The next morning I realized what he was trying to do. He said he was trying to get up and go to the washroom. But because he was so sick and weak he couldn't even get out of bed so he just went to the toilet in his bed. He said, when we woke up we smelled the stench through the entire ward. Most of the other patients yelled insults at the man because of the smell. The nurses were extremely agitated and angry because they had to clean up the mess. They moved him roughly from one side to the other to take care of the problem. And one of the nurses in her anger even slapped him. And the man who was terribly embarrassed just curled up into a ball and wept. He said the next night he woke up again, 2 a.m., coughing. And he noticed the man across the aisle sit up again, trying to make his way to the washroom. But he was so, still so weak he couldn't get out of bed and he fell back whimpering again. And this is where he writes, I'm just like most of you. I don't like bad smells. I didn't want to become involved. I was sick myself. But before I realized what had happened, not even knowing why I did it, I got out of my bed. I went over to the old man. He was still crying and didn't hear me approach. And as I reached down and touched his shoulder, his eyes opened with a fearful, questioning look. And I simply smiled, put my arm under his head and his neck, my other arm under his legs, and I picked him up. Even though I was sick and weak, I was certainly stronger than he was. He was extremely light because of his old age and his advanced tuberculosis. I walked down the hall to the washroom, which was really just a smelly, smelly, filthy room with a small hole in the floor. 
I stood behind him with my arms under his arms, holding him so he could take care of himself. And after he finished, I picked him up and carried him back to his bed. As I began to lay him down with my head next to his, he kissed me on the cheek, smiled, and said something which I suppose might have been thank you. It was amazing what happened the next morning. One of the other patients whom I didn't even know woke me up around 4 a.m. with a steaming cup of delicious Indian tea. He then made motions with his hands because he knew no English, indicating that he wanted one of those pamphlets. As the sun came up, some of the other patients began to approach, motioning that they would also like one of the booklets I'd tried to distribute before. And throughout the day, people came to me asking for these gospel booklets, the nurses, the interns, the doctors, until everybody in the entire hospital had a tract, a booklet, or a gospel of John. And over the next few days, several came to me indicating they had trusted in Christ as Savior as a, re- as a result of reading that. And this is what he wraps up with. What did it take to reach those people with the good news of salvation in Christ? It certainly wasn't health. It definitely wasn't the ability to speak or give an intellectually moving discourse. Health and the ability to communicate sensitively to other cultures and peoples are all very important. But what did God use to open their hearts to the gospel? He says, I simply took an old man to the bathroom. Anybody could have done that. See, our role in the middle of the brokenness of the world is to live like the slain lamb, to do that thing just to offer ourselves in sacrifice. And that speaks volumes to the world who's, who's hearing the trumpets, who doesn't really understand what all is going on, who sees the implosion of creation, the implosion of their spiritual life, and doesn't know where to go as we surrender to that, risking even our very selves. That's how people hear the gospel. As we do justly and as we love mercy and as we walk humbly with our God, He will shine through our lives in a way that calls people from the judgment they're experiencing to forgiveness. My prayer is that God would grant us the humility and the courage to do that. Let's pray. God, we... Well, I'm just glad that passage is over. (laughs) I'll be honest. It's hard to talk about the world collapsing in on itself and the judgment and the breaking down of creation and, and the suffering of people and even death. It's hard to talk about the fact that that even in the midst of all this, people still thumb their nose at God and they don't want anything to do with Him. They, they stand in resistance to the kingdom of God. And God, the call you give us, which we'll look at again next week, is, is, is this call to follow the slain lamb in the middle of this, to, to lay down our lives in ways that would point people to the slain lamb who's offered his life for theirs. I pray, God, that you would give us the humility and the courage to live like you live. To, to present you to the world in, in the way, uh, not, not as, as the conqueror who destroys, but the, the servant who loves and dies, realizing that that is how you conquer, that is how you destroy evil, that is how you make all things new, and that one day that seventh trumpet will sound and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and you will reign forever and ever. Amen.